turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter uh, 7, chapter 15. We almost rewound us eight chapters. That would be rough, wouldn't it? All right, Matthew chapter 15. Last week we, we began chapter 15 and looked at verses 1 through 9. I, I mentioned in that sermon that it's really kind of a, a two-part sermon. Uh, Matthew 15, 1 through 20 is an entire section they really go together in what's going on in, in the narrative here that Matthew is sharing in his gospel. And so this morning, we kind of pick up where we left off, and, and Jesus continues to talk uh, to the people, specifically to the crowd. We'll see that in a moment in verses 10 through 20. In, in verses 1 through 9, he had confronted the Pharisees with a serious problem. And that problem is, is really stated very clearly in verse 8, that the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, he says. This idea of the heart and the importance of the heart has been a consistent thread throughout Matthew's gospel up to this point. I just want to point out a, a few passages that we've already covered that deal with the heart. We started early on in the Beatitudes. You remember the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 8. We read, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. As he continues to go on through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, he taught us that where our treasure is, that is where our heart will be. So that we value, that is where you can find our heart, what really drives us. It will be where our heart is, what we treasure in Matthew 12, Jesus confronts the Pharisees, 12 verses 34, 35, and then he, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Matthew 13, 15, he, he explained that this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes have closed. In that passage, it was the dull heart that led to unbelief in the people. We got to Matthew 13, and you might remember in Matthew 13, we talked about the parable of the sower and the, the soils, and each of the different type of soils was really a dissection of the heart and how the heart responds to the word of the Lord. And we looked at that and, and talked in depth about the heart there through that parable. And then last week, what we already read in verse 8, that the problem was that while the people's lips, specifically the Pharisees' lips, were close to Jesus, they spoke things saying, I honor the Lord, their heart was far from him. And Jesus is continually driving at the heart, continually leading us to consider and think about the heart. And I want to remind you of three biblical truths about the heart. I gave these to you, I don't know, it's been a while back when we talked about the, the heart. It was probably in Matthew 5. And so it's been a while. We looked at these three truths. And I just want to put them before you again, why the heart is so important. The, the first one is this, is that the heart is the center of who man is. It's the center of who man is. It's, it's what drives our lives. It is who we are. It includes the intellect, the, the will, the seat of the emotions. And so it really is the central part of who we are. It drives our lives. So the heart is the center of who man is. The second truth that I gave you that day was that the heart is man's primary or root problem. The heart is man's primary or root problem. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we, we read that, a verse that many of you heard or might even know, the heart is deceitful above all things, all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That understanding that, that we have a heart that is needing to be made new, it's needing life, it is dead, and we need a heart that is made new in Christ. Third, the third truth of the heart is that the heart of man is of utmost importance to God. The heart of man is of utmost importance to God. You can trace that all throughout Scripture. We talk about that often, that the greatest commandment Jesus cites in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven is that we would love the Lord our God wholeheartedly. Well, that's based in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and what was known as the Shema, the great declaration, and, and where God says that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. We are to have a wholehearted love and devotion to the Lord. You think about Psalm 24, verse 3 to 6, and you have this great question asked. The psalmist says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Do you remember the answer? The answer is he who has a clean hands 
and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to that what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Who is it that can come into the presence of the Lord but the one with clean hands and a pure heart? The one who does not live life in ungodliness but lives in purity of heart. That is the one that is characterized as the one who seeks the Lord. Or you think about the importance of the heart of the new covenant when Jeremiah prophesies that, that, that the new covenant will be established in God. That new covenant is described as, as one that God will make with the house of Israel uh, after those days, declares the Lord, is said, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. The heart is of central concern to God throughout Scripture. And it is a necessary backdrop for this passage. We think about our passage today, and we need to know and remember that God has always been concerned about and focused upon the heart of man. And so with that backdrop, let's read the word of the Lord this morning from Matthew 15, beginning in verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We come to this passage, and I, I want to just put this before you this morning right away of two reasons that we come to this passage, and this passage matters in our lives today. The, the first reason that it matters for us to come to this passage is because we need to be careful who we allow to influence our lives. It matters because those we allow to influence our lives will radically impact our lives. That's the first reason it matters. The second reason it matters is because we must stay focused on our heart or we're going to drift into this vain, legalistic religion. This really worthless, this of no value in which many of the people found themselves in that day. We think about this passage the reality is the Pharisees really should have known better. They should have known the importance of the heart. They should have known that the heart was the, the source of true worship. This should have been something where Jesus taught, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, you're right, you're right, we understand that. But it appears that over time they had drifted into the most rigid form of legalism. Their interpretations of the, of the law of God had become religious rules and traditions that usurped the very authority of God's word. That their, their ideas and their interpretations led people to break the word of God. I, I love the, what we what we saying there. We made mention of the prayer that God would speak through his word. And, and he makes the reference, I, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but the reference to timeless truths of God that endure for all eternity. That we don't come here and seek to be taught these new philosophies or new swayings of, of new ideas and, and things that would be put before us that it's shifting. But we come and we sit under the authority of God's word that is timelessly true. It does not shift. It does not change. And it will endure. The word of the Lord will endure forever, we're told. It will endure forever. And Jesus stood against this tide of, of shifting legalism, this tide of interpretations that created these traditions and, and expoundings of the word that did not uh, stay with the word but was divorced from it. 
And we see this constantly in our own day. A constant pulling towards that. A constant temptation to elevate traditions, to elevate interpretations and authority that they would be equal to the clear black and white word of God. And we must stand against it as Christ did. I would draw your attention to verse 10. Look what he does right away. Verses 1 through 9, you have this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you weren't here last week, you can just quickly glance back up in those passages and, and what was going on there where the, the Pharisees come, they confront Jesus and say, hey, why do your disciples not wash their hands? And he says, why do you then break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And so you have this interchange and this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. I shared with you last week that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this would be a pretty, pretty substantial moment when Jesus stands in confrontation to the Pharisees. He stands opposed to them, men who would have been very, uh, very respected, very, uh, very much leaders in the Jewish community. And he stands opposed to them. This would be a, a difficult time. And so here in verse 10, Jesus shows great concern for the crowd. It says he calls the people to him and he says to them, hear and understand. Hear and understand. Essentially, he says, listen up. I, I want you to understand this. This is very important. It's important. He knew the influence of the Pharisees. And so he invites the crowd to come to him and listen. And the point in verse 11 is, is basically a failure to wash your hands does not defile you. It is what is inside that defiles. That's exactly what he says. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. That is what defiles a person. Now, this saying, this statement, this teaching by Christ in verse 15, Jesus, or Peter calls it a parable. He says, will you explain this parable to us? He says, a parable here is explaining or, or the understanding of, of just a wise statement that Jesus made. And that's what he's referring to. When Jesus says that in verse 15, it's referring back to that statement. It's essentially the same. You might remember in um, Psalm 78, it's verse 2 or 3, right at the beginning of Psalm 78, uh, the psalmist states the same thing, that I will utter parables of old, and he's talking about wise sayings there. He's not talking about stories to teach truths. He's talking about wise sayings and accounts. It's the same thing here that what's going on when, when Peter says that. Will you explain this parable? And so Jesus explains it and elaborates on it in the rest of the passage. There's two truths or two principles we need to draw from this passage today. Here's the first one is that we need to be careful who we allow to influence us. We need to be careful who influences us. This is verses 12 to 14. The, the disciples in this moment, they have a, a genuine concern, don't they, in verse 12. Verse 12, they have a genuine concern. They, they come to him and say, do you, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? You have to suppose, suppose this probably was pretty sincere. Again, the Pharisees are respected in their day. The Pharisees are teachers. They know the word. And now their master has seriously offended them. And so they're kind of going, do you, do you realize? Like, they're, they were quite offended. Do you know that you offended them? And so it enters into this, this dialogue with Jesus. Now, I would ask you, what is it that offended the Pharisees? What is it that brought offense? It doesn't seem to be centered around at all any way the, the way Jesus spoke to them. It wasn't his, his speech or his mannerisms, his actions that offended them. What offended the Pharisees was the truth that Jesus spoke to them. Jesus stood firm on the truth and he, he opposed their upholding of tradition. And what we see here is that truth will often offend people. It will offend. We don't see Jesus offending in the way he speaks to them and his mannerisms, but we do see the fact that when he stands opposed to what they're teaching, when he stands upon the truth of God's word, it brings offense to the Pharisees. And the truth we learn here is that the truth will sometimes be offensive because it confronts sin and false teaching. And so in that moment, it will be offensive we shouldn't seek to be offensive in the way we speak and the things we do, right? The messenger, we don't want to be offensive in and of ourselves, but we can't shy away from the truth when the truth is offensive. We have to speak the truth. It's what we're taught in 1 Peter. So you know, 
1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Then he clarifies in the way we do that. It's so easy sometimes to just boldly and brashly speak that truth. But Peter clarifies, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may not or may be put to shame. Because it, in that way is not you that offended, it's the truth that offended. Listen, the gospel will be offensive to people. It'll be offensive to people who are seeking to justify themselves or who are counting on some other way to, to bring salvation to themselves or purpose their lives, some other idea, some other religion. The gospel in and of itself may be offensive. The truth of God's word may be offensive. But when gospel truth is at stake, we must not be silent. We must not be silent. We're tasked was speaking the truth even in difficult times. Now verse 13, verse 13, Jesus speaks a word of judgment upon the Pharisees and scribes. Look at, look at verse 13. He answers them. They're concerned about the offense. And he answers them, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. It will be rooted up. He's warning and he's pronouncing a, a judgment saying, listen, these men are not teaching and proclaiming the things of God. They're leading you astray. He's confronting the false teaching of the Pharisees. The same thing he did in, in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. In that passage, he says that, that you'll know false teachers by their fruit. You'll, you'll see what is truly within them by the fruit of their lives, where their lives lead them. So it may sound great in the moment. It may sound great for a time. But the long-term working out of that teaching will show they truly are, that it's false teaching. In Matthew 7, 19, in that passage, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. A word of judgment. It's the same thing. You think about John the Baptist in, in Matthew 3, 9 to 10. John spoke very clearly again to the, to the Pharisees. He encounters them, and he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a consistent theme. And now Jesus describes the Pharisees here as those who the Father has not planted. And because he has not planted, what is their end? Where will they end up. He says, they will be rooted up. They will be rooted up. Be careful who you allow to influence you. In this moment, Jesus is warning of the teaching of the Pharisees. And we need to develop discernment to know what teaching is from God and what teaching is not. There, there's a lot of teaching out today. You know this. You know that, that YouTube is filled with false teaching to, to tickle your ears and to help you to just feed your sinful flesh and the desires you want. If you, can, if you want, you can find anything to validate your feelings and ideas that you want to on YouTube. You just enter it in. And you can find people who will affirm you and say, hey, that's right, that's right. You keep on in that. The Scriptures warn us of that. We need to develop discernment to know, is what I'm being taught does it conform, does it submit to the authority of God's Word? Or is it something that is the philosophy of man? Is it something that is man-centered and man-focused? We need to have discernment to know the difference. Several years ago, we, uh, we plant a garden every year in the, the back of our yard by our shed. We plant this little garden, nothing big, but just things we like. And um, Steph was quite excited. We decided to plant some strawberries and had a nice strawberry patch and only problem is, is I didn't have the discernment to know the difference between strawberries and weeds, and so I tilled the garden and um, tilled the strawberries and the weeds all under, and it looked good to me. I thought it was great, and Steph went out looking for her strawberry plants, and she couldn't find them. Uh, so I had no discernment. The problem with that is there is no discernment. I hadn't learned the difference. I didn't know the difference. I hadn't trained my eyes to discern the difference. By the way, we haven't had strawberries since that time. She just hadn't given a second ago. It's okay, I guess. But I need to develop discernment in that area. 
When we think about teaching and things that come into our lives, we need to develop discernment to know what is true and what is false, what is of God, what is of the world. Hebrews 6.14, it describes those who are mature in Christ as those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern and distinguish good from evil. Are you focused on the Word of the Lord? Are you growing in the Word? Are you maturing in Christ in such a way that you have constantly, you're looking and seeking to discern the, the difference between the teaching of man and the teaching of God? The truth of God's Word and the deceit of the adversary. Do you know the difference? Can you discern the difference? Or are you like me? You're just running through and you know no difference. You just go about life. I don't really have time this morning, I don't think, but if you'll write down and go read it, Proverbs 2, 1 to 15. Proverbs 2, 1 to 15. won't read it all, but in, in Proverbs 2, you have this, this speaking of wisdom from Solomon. And he's saying to pursue wisdom, to seek it out, to seek wisdom, to seek knowledge. And he says that if you, if you seek it, in verse 3, he says, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You'll know the difference. He says that the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, watching over the way of his saints. He later goes on to, to say that he will give you discernment, discretion, and it will watch over you. The understanding he gives you will guard you. It will deliver you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. How do you know the difference? How are you careful to discern who is influencing you? Well, you seek the Lord for wisdom. You come to him and seek him for wisdom. And we know from the word, we know from here, we know from James 1 that God gives abundantly. He gives wisdom. And that wisdom leads to knowledge and understanding and ability to discern right from wrong, to discern what is true and what is a lie, to discern the teachings of man from the teaching of God. It gives wisdom and discernment. It guards us, protects us, shields us, the word the Lord says. So think about the Pharisees here in Matthew 15. How does Jesus describe them? How does he describe them? Blind guides. Blind guides. He says, let them alone, verse 14. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both, both will fall in a pit. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus describes the Pharisees as blind guides. He, he calls them blind guides later in Matthew 23, verse 16 and 24, when he's pronouncing woe upon the Pharisees. He describes them there as blind guides. And he says here, they are blind guides. Just leave them alone. Don't listen to them. Don't be influenced by them. They're they, they're the, they are those who do not know the way. They do not know the truth. And you must not ignore the inevitable result of following after them. Look at what he says in verse 14. What is the inevitable result if you follow after a blind guide? What does it say there? It's right there in your text. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Both. We, we can't go about our life and, and just ignore the fact that if I follow after those who are teaching wrong and ungodly and perverted truths, that it's going to lead me right there. It's going to lead me to destruction. That that ungodly teaching is going to influence me in such a way that I will end up where I never thought I would be. The Pharisees were blindly leading people into vain religion at the neglect of biblical truth and the condition of man's heart. They're just re leading them right into this vain religion. And so the question that I think is before us when we think about this passage and what Jesus talks about with the Pharisees is this, is have you considered where? Have you considered to what end you're being led? The people who are influencing you, are you considering where they're going to lead you to? So young people, you, you have influencers, right, that you follow, you have influencers that you, you watch their, their vlog, or vlog, is it a vlog, vlog, I don't know. I, whichever way I say it, my kids make fun of me. So I say vlog, I think it's vlog, but I can't tell the difference between vlog and blog when I hear it. So, so it's a vlog. 
All right. You follow influencers. You follow influencers. Have, have you considered where they're leading you? When, you? when you peel away their humor, when you peel away the crazy things they do, when you peel away their just impeccable fashion, have you considered what they're leading you to value and to prize? Have you considered what they're leading you to find hope in? Have you, have you considered what they're leading you to pursue, to run after, to give your life to? Where are these influencers influencing you toward? Adults, you listen to podcasts and you follow blogs because you don't know what a vlog is. Where are they leading us? I have a podcast app on my phone, right? You probably do too. And I've got a list, a library of podcasts that I'll listen to. Where are those people influencing me towards? What are they leading me to place my hope in? What are they leading me to prize and to value, to esteem, to give myself over to? What are they declaring is the standard for truth? Are they pointing me to the enduring, never-fading, never-ending truth of God's Word? Or are they feeding me the temporary pleasure of the candy of sin and the teaching of man? Where are they leading us? How are they influencing us? We need to be careful not to be the proverbial frog in the water. Just over time, we're influenced a little more and a little more and a little more and a little more. And all of a sudden, we wake up one day and we're somewhere we never thought we would ever be. We wake up and we're here. And just a few short years ago, we boldly said, I would never be there. I would never affirm that. I would never stand there. I would never teach that. I would never read that. I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never stay there. But yet, we wake up one day and that's where we are. Because that influence has gradually led us to where we never thought we would be. So the first truth from this passage is we have to be aware of who is influencing us and how they're influencing us. Second truth, verses 15 to 20. Don't lose sight of your heart. Verses 15 to 20, don't lose sight of your heart. We must not lose sight of our heart. We must not fall into this religion where we're only looking at works and we're only looking at things and, and, and ideas and emotions and all these things, but yet we lose sight of the true source of who we are, the source of defilement. We lose sight of our heart. In verse 17 and 18, Jesus teaches there, he says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? We don't need an anatomy lesson or biology lesson there, right? We know what he's talking about. But what comes out of the mouth, in verse 18, proceeds from the heart, and that's what defiles a person. That's what defiles a person, he says. He's teaching the source of defilement, of unrighteousness. It's not a failure to perform the correct ceremonial religious act. But instead, it is an issue, a problem of the heart. It's the same exact thing in, that Jesus taught in, in Matthew 12, 34 to 35. I read you that passage earlier. We began the sermon. It's the same thing he teaches there, that our words and actions reveal our heart. The things we say, the things we do, the way we treat people, the things we take part in, those reveal our heart. Listen, I was going so far as to say that our words and actions in everyday life are more indicative of our heart condition than, our, than are our religious acts in this hour. If you really want to know what someone believes, watch their words and actions through the week, not just what they do from 1030 to 12. Watch their words and actions through the week. They reveal the heart. Now, one thing we need to understand here is that this teaching of Christ on the heart is not 
just concerning the, the really bad, the, the sinister, whoever you think of, when you think of evil, that person comes in your mind. He's not just dealing with that person. He's not dealing with the people that are just really, really sinister people and characters. No, this is the condition of every one of us. Every one of us. This is a condition. This speaks to all of us. This is based on the truth of God's Word. It's based on the, the truth of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 14, quoted again by Paul in, in Romans 3, that, that all have sinned. There's none who seek God. None are righteous. No, not one. So we can't set this passage aside and say, oh yeah, he's just talking about the Pharisees, or oh, he's just talking about the, the really sinful people. No, he's talking about all of us. This absolutely speaks to us. Absolutely. And we can't set it aside and go, oh, well, I'm a Christian, and so I don't really have to worry about my heart. My heart's fine. No, this absolutely applies to us. It absolutely speaks to us. Just two easy examples, very quick examples. Think about David. The condition of his heart, where it led him. He's described as a man after God's own heart, yet he fell prey to a lustful heart. And it led him to what? It led him to adultery. It led him to lie. It led him to murder. All because the lust of the heart. Or think about Paul. You remember Paul? The condition of the heart? Yeah, Paul. Remember Paul in Romans 7? Where he describes this wrestling within that, that he faced a battle of indwelling sin within that led him to do what he did not want to do. And it, it takes him through that passage. I think it's uh, Romans seven fifteen to 20. And he just goes through this turmoil and this wrestling that he finds himself in. He is battling the, the indwelling sin. We're, we're free, listen, as Christians, we're freed from the penalty, penalty of sin. But the presence of sin is still there. And so we need God's sanctifying grace to shape us into his image and to strengthen us to pursue him and to live in his holiness. And Paul wrestles with that. He wrestles with it. David wrestled with it. Of course, you have the reality and the truth, right, of Psalm 51, of, P, of David coming before the Lord. David coming before, before the Lord and repenting and turning to him and the forgiveness that is found in Christ. You have the, the great truth and declaration of Romans 8 coming right out of Romans 7 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We have the great assurance in 1 John. And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to cleanse us our sins, to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We know all those truths. It doesn't negate the fact that we wrestle sin and we wrestle indwelling sin. Just because those truths are there do not justify and go, okay, then we just live however we want to live. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we live as though we don't have to wrestle with our heart. no. This absolutely applies to us. We need to be aware. We need to understand the heart. The teaching of the Pharisees had, had caused them and those who followed them to lose sight of the condition of their heart. That they became more focused on their actions, their religious actions. They became more focused perhaps on behavior modification than they did heart transformation. They focused on these external acts rather than the condition of of the heart. They are leading people to trust in religious works to cleanse them. When the only thing that can cleanse the heart is the transforming grace of God in Christ. Our hearts aren't changed by the religious things we do. We all come in and we all, we all come before the Lord with sinful hearts in need of God's transforming grace. And that doesn't happen by standing up and singing. It doesn't happen by getting baptized. It doesn't happen by reciting a Bible verse. It happens by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. It happens by the fact that he brings new life to dead hearts and he transforms us by his grace. He does what only he can do. We, we know, we read it earlier, the heart is deceitful above all things, is desperately sick or desperately wicked, some translations say. 
We talked about the covenant, that in the new covenant, Jeremiah, God had said, I will put a new heart in you. Or actually, I will write my word on your heart. The words from Ezekiel, and Ezekiel talks about the great work that he's going to do. When he talks about that great work, he says that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel says God will bring that about. It's a matter of the heart, something that only God can do. Man can do religious things. Man can carry out religious deeds. Think about the Jews and, and the, the, the act or the rite of circumcision. And Paul deals with that too. He says, listen, true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. It's not a law. It's not a ritual, but it's truly a work of God on the heart. And when Jesus comes and he, he's, he's talking to Nicodemus, he doesn't say, listen, you need to do this. And you need to know this and you need to start washing here. And here's how you're clean and, and the acts you do to make yourself clean. No, what does he tell Nicodemus? In John 3, 3, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a work of God to bring about new life, to transform your heart. Listen, those of you who are here today, you're, you're unbelievers. The only way for you to be saved is for God to do a great work in your heart. You can't do this on your own. You can't incorporate religious habits and traditions to change your heart. They do not cleanse you from the sin that resides in you. They don't. It's only through the work of God in your life. You can modify your behavior around Christian friends. You can modify your behavior on a Sunday morning and make things look great. But that's not heart change. Only God can change your heart. And the good news is God does change hearts. That's the good news. Is He does indeed do that. And because He does, we have hope. We have hope, believers. And we think about this passage, we, we think about the heart, we don't graduate from heart problems. We don't get to some point in our life and go, you know what, I don't have to think about my heart anymore. I don't have to worry about it. It's good. We don't graduate from heart problems. I, I read a long time ago, I can't remember the author who said this, but I, I read it in a book a long time ago, so this is not original to me, but it's true that a problem of the heart is at the heart of every problem. We see that in life. Every problem of life that we bring to the table, whatever that is in this moment of your life, whether it's something relationally, if it's something personally, if it's something going on that is this problem of life, at some place it is rooted in a problem of the heart. It just is. And the, the key is to learn how to start digging away everything to get down to the heart. To see what it is that's producing that. What is it that's in my heart that's leading to this problem of life? Verse 19. Jesus says, for out of the heart come. And he gives a list. Out of the heart come comes these things. The heart is the root. Our actions, our words, are the fruit. And we need to understand the root issues at hand. Out of the heart come these things. This list in verse 19 is, is not exhaustive. We would understand that. It's not as though these are the only sins that are produced in the heart. But Jesus does give a, a pretty good example, a pretty good list here. Some commentators and scholars look and, and they see that it follows the progression of the back half of the Ten Commandments. They look and, and they see, or, or we look and we see Jesus saying, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. They're all rooted in the heart, in the inner man, in who we are our will so you just think about that for a moment we, we need to learn how to peel away to get to the heart so if you just think about what jesus gives us here out of the heart come evil thoughts those thoughts that you don't want anybody to know you have those thoughts that that you're ashamed of that you feel guilty about that you just wish weren't there well, they arise out of the heart. 
What about murder? He says murder. Peel that away. Murder rising up out of an angry or perhaps a jealous heart. And he says adultery. Adultery. Where would adultery be? If we peel adultery back, we make all kinds of excuses and try to justify it in all sorts of ways. But at the heart of it, typically lust, covetous heart, wanting something that's not mine, sexual immorality, you pull that away, rooted in a lustful, a selfish heart. When you dig down, theft, what would theft be rooted in? If you peel everything away and you peel the excuses away, what would it be rooted in? Selfishness? Again, a covetous heart? I want that. It's not mine, but I'm going to take it anyway. False witness? What would that be rooted in? Lying and slandering about someone? about the pride of the heart? Trying to elevate myself to make myself look better and another person look worse. Just the selfishness of I'm going to protect myself. Slander, blasphemy, perhaps just rooted in bitterness and a hateful heart. It's developed over time. We need to understand the root that produces the fruit in our lives. And to be quite honestly, that can be quite painful. It can be quite humbling. It's really easy to list and to find excuses, isn't it? I think we would all say that. It's really easy to find excuses. It's easy for me to look at something that I've done simply and to point my finger at, at that or him or her. It's a lot more difficult for me to start peeling things away and go, what's going on in my heart that's producing what I know is contrary to God's Word? What is it? What is it within me? Sinful living is rooted in the sin of the heart. But you know, godliness is also rooted in a pure heart. Remember that. Just three passages you may want to read later at 1 Timothy 1.5. We talked about that last week. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our church is love that issues what? From a pure heart. It comes out of, it comes from a pure heart. Or what about what Paul, or Peter says in 1 Peter 1.22 that love, he says, love one another earnestly. He's calling the people to love one another. You know where that comes from? Peter says, from a pure heart. Or Paul says again in 2 Timothy 2.22, he, he calls, Timothy says, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. From a pure heart. We need God to do a great work in our hearts. There's two things. I'll just give you these really quick. Two things, two ways to examine our own hearts. You want to really learn to examine what's going on in our heart. The first thing is ask probing questions of yourself. So ask probing questions. You think about something going on. You think about this problem of life you find yourself in. Ask probing questions that are going to get beyond just the surface, get beyond just the, the actions. Why did I do that? Why did I do it? What, what in my heart is causing me to say those things to him? Or what in my heart is causing me to say those things about her? What, what is it in my heart? Why am I thinking that? Why am I going after that? What's in my heart? The second thing in examining your heart is to 
once you ask those questions, examine the root. Examine what's at the root. When you see that and you answer those questions, go, okay, all right, now let's think about that. Let's examine those things. I answered it with this. Now let's examine that. Is this something that would be very clearly sinful? Is it something that, that God's word clearly says this is sin? But yet you've tried to justify it and you try to pull this and this and this and this and this and this over so that you can say, oh, well, it doesn't. That, that's, Paul dealt with that, right, in Romans 6. And he's talking about grace and he anticipated that question. He anticipated the thing where people go, oh, well, if God's grace is so great, if that's the truth, then I can just go about and live my life in sin. And he says, what? Should we sin all the more so that grace might abound the more? By no means. By no means. It's Romans 6.1. So we look and we examine, we answer those questions, we examine it, and we say, is this sinful? Is it ungodly? No, hey, God's Word says it is. So we deal with it and we lay it before Him. We confess it to Him. Seeking His forgiveness and His cleansing. Or perhaps we look at it and we say, you know what, this isn't something that's even necessarily sinful I, but it is still causing sinful actions why would that be why would that be have you ever been a pl- in a place perhaps where i i do this sometimes we talk about uh, in, in some marital premarital counseling trying to help help couples understand how this can happen is there's times where you know god says that that we you know teaches that that a wife should respect her husband and so there's nothing wrong with me wanting to be respected in my home. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I take that desire and I grab hold of that so firm and say, you know what, my family will respect me. I don't care what happens. That desire becomes what I think it's Paul David Tripp describes as a ruling desire. Something that so takes hold and so captivates you, you so grab hold of them and say, you know what, I will be respected. My kids will respect me. My wife will respect me. Oh, and then all sorts of ungodliness comes about, doesn't it? And then I absolutely fail to be the husband that loves his wife as Christ of the church, who nourishes her and cherishes her, who protects her. Oh, I, I so demand it that I fail to bring my children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, but yet I lord over them and domineer them and press them down until they will respect me at all ends. So what is in my heart? Is it something that's just out and out sinful or is it something that I've raised and elevated to an idolatrous state and it rules my heart? We have to examine ourselves so i just bring you back to the two points to close why does this passage matter why does this passage matthew 15 10 to 20 matter it matters because we have to be careful who is influencing us we have to understand that who we allow to influence us will radically impact our lives So who's influencing you? Are you listening to a blind guide? Are you listening to one who is leading you to a place it will be a place of destruction? How are they influencing you? Are they speaking grand ideas that have no foundation in truth? Are they leading you to prize Things that should not be prized to give your life over to things that is going to be worthless and vain and a waste of time. Perhaps it's time to break ties with those influences. Maybe it's time to unfollow that influencer so he or she has influence no more. Maybe it's time to delete that podcast and no longer listen to it. Maybe it's time to cast that book aside, to stop reading that site, to unsubscribe from those email chains. The second 
thing. So we have to know who influenced our lives. The second reason this mattered was what? Is that we have to stay focused on the heart. Why? Because if we do not stay focused on the heart, we will drift into this vain legalistic religion. And you might even say you'll drift there at best. If you neglect the heart, there's no telling where you end. We have to stay focused on our heart. For the unbeliever, just remind you that hope is not found in religion. Hope is found in Jesus Christ and his heart-changing ability to transform your life, to sanctify you and grow you, that you can pursue holiness, that you can run after him. He doesn't save you into this running after him that is easy, that is simple, that is without any presence or any affliction of sin, but he saves you into a life where you pursue him. He walks with you. He strengthens you. He empowers you by his grace to stand firm against the schemes of Satan, to stand firm against the power of the flesh, to pursue him, his grace. Don't be fooled in just trying to modify your behavior by becoming religious. Give your life to Christ. Trust him, repent of your sins, and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Please, nothing else will save you. Coming to this church is not going to save you. Jesus Christ saves you. Jesus Christ. Believers, don't neglect your heart. Don't neglect it. Don't pretend that there's no battle to be waged. Don't pretend that there is no difficulty to fight through. There is. Don't buy the lie that no one else has the struggles like I do. We do. There's a story behind every one of us. There's heart battles behind every one of us. And we need the grace of God to strengthen us in that. Don't neglect your heart. Don't choose to be ignorant of how people are influencing you. Let's pray.